Hello and welcome to Success Stories. I'm Kendra Hall, Chief Storytelling Officer at Success Magazine, and this is the podcast where we sit down with the brightest stars and the boldest thought leaders as they share their stories so you can create your own success story. Now, I will say I was really excited about this next interview, but as excited as I was, my husband was even more excited when he found out this is who I'd be talking to for the next hour during the day I was recording. He lost his mind. It was like I was talking to a superhero, and in a way, I suppose I was. But beyond his superhero daredevil powers, there was something even more important to learn from this story, and that is the presence of fear, how it shows up or in some cases doesn't, what it means, and what each one of us can do with it. I can't wait for you to hear this story. Let's get to it. High Wire Daredevil Nick Walenda is the holder of seven Guinness World Records, among which are the highest four-level eight-person pyramid on the wire, the highest and the longest bicycle ride on a wire, and hanging from a helicopter by his teeth. He has walked across Niagara Falls and the Grand Canyon in stunts broadcast to 178 countries around the world. He is also the author of a new book, Facing Fear, Step Out in Faith and Rise Above What's Holding You Back, which tells the story of Nick and his family, seven generations of aerial artists, and offers practical advice for readers to overcome whatever fears are holding them back in life or in business. Welcome to Success, Nick. We are so excited to hear your stories. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, so we heard in the introduction that you are a man of many talents and one of which is just hovering at insane heights on a teeny tiny wire. And um, most recently, you published your second book, Facing Fear, Step Out in Faith and Rise Above What's Holding You Back. First of all, congratulations on that project. Thanks so much. Which is scarier, book writing or um, being an aerialist? Goodness, you know, I think I think book writing can be scary because you're so vulnerable, and and just at least in my books, I am completely vulnerable, and I tell all, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. But I think in order to help people get better that's what we have to do. We have to tell people the ugly side as well, because we all have that side. We all have those negative moments and we all have that, uh, you know, we all have our ups and downs. You know, I believe that you can't be successful without failure. And, uh, and I talk about a lot of the failures in my books. Yeah. You know, I have to say, so, um, you know, I mentioned our listeners know that my role at success is a chief storytelling officer. And so, you know, in that role, I get to read a lot of books. And I have to tell you, I was, I was immediately sucked in to the storytelling in yours. And I believe the first two chapters are about falling and about um, the mistakes. So before we get into that, can you walk us all the way back? Because this is... Depends on how how far back you want me to go. My family history dates back to the 1780s. So we can go way back. Let's go, let's, instead of going all the way back seven generations, let's start, is it seven generations? It is, correct. Yeah, Um, let's go back 
to you and your immediate family. Give us kind of a, the um, debrief of those first six generations and then sure. how you came to do what you do. Yeah, so my family started performing in the 1780s over in Bohemia, eventually making their way to Europe and living in Germany, which is where my great grandfather was born. And uh, his name was Carl Walenda. And he's really the one who, who made the name famous or synonymous with daredevils, with aerialists, and with really with the circus world, which is my history. He brought our family over to the United States in 1928 uh, when he was contacted by John Ringling, who owned Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus. So that was my family made their way to America, performed on Ringling Brothers for about, uh, about 25 years. And then my great-grandfather went on to produce his own shows. Uh, my great-grandfather was an amazing daredevil, amazing aerialist, did amazing feats all over the world. And when he was... Uh, 73 years old, he was performing on a cable between two skyscrapers in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And as he was making his way out on that wire, the wire was rigged unstable. And at 73 years old, the rush of adrenaline that his heart was, was necessary for him because of the challenge he was facing and the wire was so unstable, uh, we believe it caused him to go into cardiac rest, which in the end caused him to fall down uh, to the ground and lose his life. And about three months later, I was born, and that was the legacy I inherited, which was that history of these amazing aerialists who, through triumph and tragedy, continue to perform no matter what. I've lost seven family members performing, believe it or not. Uh, one of my uncles paralyzed from the waist down during a tragic accident in 1962. Uh, but again, our family, no matter what, have always lived by the words, the show must go on. And those are the words that I've adapted to never give up because I believe that it's much more relatable to most people, to the average person. But uh, again, that is, the, that is my legacy and that is what drives me to do what I do. Now, I started walking before I was actually walking the wire before I was actually walking on the ground. In fact, my mom was six months pregnant with me and still walking the wire. So before my feet were on terra firma, I was on a wire. But um, I started actually walking the wire about 18 months old, only about two feet off the ground. And that's where we would train and rehearse for, for uh, as my family would train. And I, I saw them doing what they do and, and having passion for it. We certainly love what we do. And seeing them do that, it's just like, you know, I often say it's like a, a child who sees his father with a hammer driving a nail in. Well, he crawls over there, even if he can't walk yet, and he grabs that hammer. And, uh, and that was the same for me. So started at a very young age and then uh, just continued throughout my adulthood. Do you remember, do you remember uh, walking across the wire at 18 months, two years old? Do you, can you, you know, I don't know that I, I, there's a lot of photos. So that helps, of course, yeah. helps my memory. So I don't know if it's because of those photos that I remember or actually being on the wire. I would say the earliest I remember is probably about four or five years old. Uh, performing in front of an audience, uh, not on the wire necessarily, although I did that as well. But I also started performing about two years old as a clown. Uh, I would go out with all the clowns in the ring. My parents had a show at SeaWorld in San Diego in 1981. And I would actually come out in a pillowcase and they would dump me in the ring and I would do a skit with them basically. And, uh, and that was sort of my first uh, experience in front of a live audience. But I, I recall four or five years old performing in front of an audience and then eventually uh, six or seven sitting on my dad's shoulders as he was riding a bike on a wire 30, 40 feet above the ground. And, uh, and those memories are definitely ingrained in my mind forever. You know, I think, Nick, this book and, and your message is particularly important um, right now. We're recording this, what is it? It's late November 2020. Uh, the numbers 2020 just come with a, a whole yeah, realm of emotion around them. And, and I think one of the primary emotions 
that many of us will walk away with at this time and maybe wouldn't even know it as we're in the middle of it. But yeah. that is fear. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so much fear. So there's, and even just reading your book and your conversation about fear and the way you address fear and the way you talk about fear and the way you've understood fear and adapted fear for yourself. I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because I would imagine that there was almost an element of fearlessness. Sure. You know, Think about um, 18 months, two years old, five years old. I mean, people, one of the greatest fears there is, is being in front of other people, right? You are not only in front of other people, but on your dad's shoulders, on a bicycle, in the end. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with fear. Yeah. So early on, as you mentioned, I've done it so long that, that, I had never experienced or faced fear on the wire until we had this tragic accident back in 18 that we'll talk about in a minute. And the reality was, if you would have asked me before that accident, if fear was in my DNA, I would have said, no, I didn't believe that it was. It was, you know, what, what you might call fear or what the average person might call fear, I call respect. You know, I believe there's a healthy fear and there's an unhealthy fear. And there's a, there's a healthy fear that causes us to respect the situation. Uh, The healthy fear is I'm going to get in a boardroom with, with 40 other people and I'm going to present to them. I'm going to prepare. I'm going to train. And that's, that's a healthy fear. It is the acknowledgement of, Hey, I have to respect this situation and I need to train and prepare. I need to study. I need to make sure that, that my slideshow is prepared properly and that I'm going to do a great job in this presentation. There's also the unhealthy fear that tells you not to prepare and not to even step into that boardroom because you're too so scared, or it tells you not to step out of your comfort zone and not pursue your dreams. I think so many people, in fact, one of the reasons I wrote this book prior, and I wrote this book prior to the pandemic. In fact, I added a chapter at the end, but the reality was, I'd written this book and I wrote it to people that are that are scared to pursue their dreams. I think so many people are held back by fear because of settling for status quo in many senses. I think because many people are are scared of of the risks that it takes to pursue your dreams. You know, and, and when I say your dreams, it could be climbing Mount Everest or it could be you know, your dream job, whatever that may be. You know, I think so many people go, well, I'm in a job. I've been here for 15 years and I've got a paycheck every Friday and, and it's paying my mortgage and my bills and my family's comfortable. So I'm going to keep going to work on Monday miserable, but at least at the end of the, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And, and I wrote this book to hopefully, you know, give some practical steps of how my family for over 200 years have overcome fear, hopefully to guide others to step out of their comfort zones. Because the reality is every time I get on that wire, even though I've done it so long, I do it in these very unique situations, the Grand Canyon with 40 plus mile an hour winds, 1500 feet up, uh, Niagara Falls over an active volcano. So I'm, I'm stepping out of my comfort zone every single time I do this. And, and hopefully through this book, uh, Facing Fear, people will be inspired and encouraged to step out of their comfort zones uh, and do it smart, do it wise, use wisdom and knowledge. I don't tell people to quit your job and go pursue your dream job, keep your job, but you can simultaneously pursue your dream job. And I actually talk a lot about that in my first book, Balance. Of, of how I had this dream of carrying on this legacy that was over 200 years old. But at 17 years old, my mom, actually at, at, at about 11 years old, my mom had wrote a book called The Last of the Walendas because she believed there was no future in the industry. My great-grandfather wrote a book in the 70s and he said, you know, as an entertainer, a live entertainer, especially in the circus world, one day you eat the chicken and the next day you eat the feathers. And the reality is I, I actually wrote a chapter in my book called Fear of Feathers because it's something that I've dealt with is, 
is that pursuing those dreams and that fear of, hey, will I struggle to pursue that dream and to fulfill that dream? So again, this book was written really to encourage and inspire others to, to step out, use wisdom. Uh, you know, I was talking about my, my career early on. I, my mom didn't want me to carry on this industry. My dad said, absolutely not. Get out of it. You won't be able to support a family. They struggled through uh, through high school. My parents went through bankruptcy. We nearly lost everything we owned. And, and again, the business just wasn't paying bills. So I had a decision to make. And, and the reality was I was altering my dreams and my passions and my desires because of that fear of feathers. And I ended up signing up for a university. I was about to go off to college. And I, my goal was to become a pediatrician. And um, as I started pursuing that, I was accepted at that university. Uh, I was supposed to go away in the next three months. I was uh, almost 18 years old and the phone rang and it was my uncle who called my dad and said, hey, we've been invited to go to Detroit, Michigan to recreate the seven person pyramid. Well, the history of the seven-person pyramid in my family is they were performing in Detroit, Michigan in 1962, and as they made their way out on the wire in that formation of that seven-person pyramid, it collapsed, and two of my uncles were killed, and one was paralyzed from the waist down. That, that pyramid had not been duplicated, duplicated since then. So we were invited to go back, and I remember that internal struggle of, here, I'm going to be at college, and my family's going to be doing this and, and sort of showing the world that we don't give up. I can't be, I got to be a part of that. And it, it was a struggle. It was a, a fight, an argument with my parents to convince them to allow me to, to go and be a part of that. But the agreement was they were going to allow me to train for six months and do that, but I was going to have to go to college the next year. Mm. And I remember getting there and, and, and the, just the passion that I have for what we do and, 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 and performing and realizing that, you know, that there is a future in what we do, but we've got to change the way we do it. You know, I think so many people in the business world are, are again, settling for status quo. We've always done it this way, so we're going to continue to do it that way. And that's those are words that I hate to hear. And I've, I've ran several different businesses, and often people that have been in the organization for a long time will say, you know, uh, well, that's the way it always has been. It, well, that, it's time for change. That's the reason why a lot of industries die and go away. And, and that's really when I set out to, to pursue my dreams and, and take my career to all new heights, no pun intended. I know. All the puns, all the puns. That's are. right. Well, and, and gosh, there's so much. So I want to talk about that because, um, you know, doing things a different way than yeah. has always been done, finding a new path, I think is something that, you know, you obviously approached several years ago and now everybody's kind of at that crossroads right now. That's I right. did another pivot. We'll get to that. But there is something I want to go back to. I want to go back to just for a moment. And to reiterate something, to re-say something that you said in there that I've never heard this way and I think it's really beautiful and succinct is there there is the kind of fear that you call respect and, and that, that, is, that that is healthy. There, it is healthy to have a respect for what is at stake, you know, whether that is going into the boardroom or whether that is walking across an, an active volcano and, and whether you're, in some cases, you do it alone. Some cases you're up there one of, you know, a seven yeah. man pyramid, um, but respect for the situation um, I think that's such a healthy, that, that's a, a much healthier way to think of healthy fear yes, um, in, in all areas of, of life, whether it's the things you can control in your work, whether it, it's the environment around you. That was, that was extremely helpful. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Um, so one question that I have in regards to this respect, and I want to go back to your, I believe it was your great grandfather, um, right, who had the cardiac arrest on mm -hmm. the wire in Puerto Rico, right? right? 
So let me ask you, was this, was this a story that your family hid from you or hid from each other because they didn't want you to be afraid? No, you know what? It was always something known from a young age. It was, um, you know, I think the the reason why it didn't cause fear is because we we try to learn from our accidents. You know, over 200 years, we've learned a lot. And I think that's the blessing of why I have, you know, 13 Guinness World Records and have walked over places no one in the world have ever had the opportunity to is it's not just because of my capabilities, but in my skills, but it's because of the family history and the knowledge that we've gained through all of these generations. And um, so so that that respect, uh, that respect comes from things like that accident. You know, you realize, hey, we have to respect this. Look, my great grandfather was 73 years old. And the reality is his heart wasn't in the right condition to be doing that. He was more than capable of walking that wire in a normal setting. If it wasn't unstable under his feet, he would have had no problem. He could do it in his sleep practically at that point because mm-hmm. he'd done it so many times. Mm-hmm. But the reality is we we have to, you know, we adjust. We realize, hey, you know what? There's a certain protocol. Your heart has to be at a certain level in order to continue to walk the wire. Whether you're 30 and your heart's in that condition or you're 75, the reality is your heart needs to be in that condition. And so we've set up protocols to where we know to train and prepare to this level in order to face these challenges. You know, when I go to walk across an active volcano, the level of respect is is immense. In fact, so I will go there years in advance and we do studies that will show how hot it will be. It'll show how thick the gases will be. It'll show how strong the winds will be. Every condition that you can imagine. And then I start training for that sometimes years in advance. Uh, I will train, so for example, for the volcano, I trained with an oxygen deprivation mask that dropped my oxygen levels to about 20%. And compared to what I would face while wearing the actual oxygen mask, which is about 80%. So again, over preparing if there is such a thing. I'd walk on a wire that was less, much less stabilized. I would walk on a wire. In fact, that, that wire was about 2,000 feet. And I would walk uh, 10 times that length. I'd walk two and a half miles without stopping, training for that walk. I would walk with, uh, with my eyes closed backwards that entire length for training so that when I get there, I know I am so prepared that I can confidently take that first step. If it wasn't for all that respect leading up to it and all that training and preparation, when I got up to that wire, I would freak out. My heart rate would rise. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, when I walk up to the edge of that volcano prior to the wire being rigged, my heart rate starts to escalate. And the reason it does is because the soil, the terra firma I'm standing on is unstable and it could cave out. And I realized that. And then I would, could fall into that caldera and into that, that 2000 plus degree magma that was down below me. But when that wire's up and I walk up to it, I am so prepared that in fact, my heart rate lowers. It's actually a calming effect on me when I walk up to the edge of that volcano, getting ready to take that first step. Oh my gosh. I was going to ask, like, how do you, because I know before, I'm sure, and like anyone, like the minute that you're right before you get up to give a pitch or, uh, you know, I even think about the, the fear of, you know, for someone who's single and wants to approach someone now at a six feet distance, but approach someone and talk to them, you know, like that, that rush. Um, So I was going to ask, like, what does that feel like? So I want to just for a moment, since I have this now, and I'm sure everybody does this visualization of you standing, this image of you standing on a wire across this volcano. What? And of course we can watch the video, right? It's on, it's on YouTube. It was on ABC. It's probably ABC go as well. Yeah. But what does it look like? to you like what is your do you block everything out are you 
are you you might as well be walking across your lawn or in a tent no you know what does it feel like for you yeah so leading up to the event a lot of what i do is visual preparation too i i put myself there mentally uh over and over again so while i'm training and i train in my backyard i've I've got a wire that's about 1500 feet long in my backyard and i'll walk what we call laps back forth back forth back forth uh, in order to train for stamina and, 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 um, and duration. So, um, but when I'm, when I'm walking in the backyard, I'm, I'm literally visualizing myself over that volcano. I am again, putting myself in that position so that when I get to that volcano and I face a, a gust of wind or which, which the, the winds were insane, stronger than over the grand Canyon. Actually, when I walked across that volcano in some, some points, um, I put myself back in my backyard. I train with wind machines that create 120 mile an hour winds, which is, it's hard to stand on a sidewalk with 120 mile an hour winds. But because I'm so prepared, uh, again, physically leading up to that for these walks, I will put my mind, I get hit with a gust of wind and rather than freaking out, I can counter that negative thought of freaking out with the positive thought of, well, I've walked in much worse than this. This is nothing. I've walked five times this long. I've walked with less oxygen. I've walked with more weight. I've walked with hotter, hotter conditions. I've walked with winds that are stronger. So I can, I can literally talk myself off the cliff. You know, if I didn't prepare that way and I got hit with that gust of wind, I would go down and hold on and wait for help. But I can also, rather than doing that, I can go, no, stay calm. You're fine. And it's a conversation. You know, we all know that analogy of the the devil and the angel and that conversation they have with each other. Well, that's, that's real. We all deal with that in one way or another. And, uh, and I'm able to calm myself down again, by the preparation, by the respect that I have leading up to these events. That's why I'm not fearful when I get on that wire. Do you ever, are you ever joyful? Like, do you get to have a chance when you're standing up there to look around and look oh, down absolutely. And, yeah. and be like, oh my gosh, I'm above yeah. Times Square. Like, look at me. Yeah. Yeah. And if you listen to Times Square, even the volcano, you'll hear me talking about how amazing it is. You know, to walk yeah. over 2000 degree magma, there's no, no way to describe a volcano until you see one in action live in person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it is, it is literally a lake of, of lava and it is like flowing it's water. It's like being at the ocean in waves of, of, of lava. It is mesmerizing. So to be in those, these positions is, is for me, it's a dream come true. I mean, these are literally dreams that I have uh, as I'm, you know, whether I'm sleeping or whether I'm traveling around the world, I do a lot of motivational speaking. And a lot of times I'm flying places, which is what happened when I saw that uh, the volcano, I was flying over to uh, Mexico city to do a speaking event, corporate speaking event. And uh, I was sitting in the window, I looked down and I flew over an active volcano. And I was like, man, that would be an amazing walk and then started pursuing to find one that was realistic in order to, to make it happen. But uh, so these, these, I consider myself extremely blessed to be in that situation in those places. And I don't take it for granted. And I try to take it all in as best I can as well and enjoy the moment. Okay, good. That's why I was like, I, I would imagine that like the prep, the preparedness, the level of focus, I was like, that would be a real bummer if you get all the way across. And yeah. we're like, so what was that like? <laughs> yeah. What I would tell you too is every walk that I've done, it seems like, and this this applies to any business person, but the no matter how much you prepare, you're always going to get thrown curveballs. You know, two days before I'm mentally in the zone. I know the wire's stable. I know it's ready to go. Two days before the walk in the volcano, I am sitting in my hotel room with my father and, and my father gets a phone call. My father oversees all my safety and my, my uncle is my lead engineer. He gets a phone call from my uncle and my dad turns pale white. And what had happened was the gas was so thick that it actually ate through some of my stabilizer wires and they started snapping uh, two days before the event with very little time to rig to, to fix that rigging and the stability of the wire is now way off. So um, again, so that is always that curveball of, of throwing in like, okay, are you, are you gonna be able to handle this now? 
two weeks before my dad called and he said, Hey, I'm feeling this cable and we didn't expect this, but there's a, there's a substance coming out of that volcano. We don't know what it is, but it almost feels like grease. I don't know how you're going to walk this wire. Those are the things that freak you out. And immediately I go, okay, well, how can I prepare for this? How can I? So I literally, when I got that phone call two weeks prior, I literally took a wire and greased it. I greased about 40 feet of wire, literally thick grease and started walking on it, training saying, okay, if I can walk on that thick of grease, I should be able to walk this wire. Now the blessing was, and I didn't know it that day and I could have freaked out and said, I give up, I'm not doing it. But that gas, that sulfuric gas that was in the, in the, in the air from that volcano actually caused the cable to rust. And because of that rust, it actually became grippy rather than slippery. And it actually was an incredible surface to walk on because of that. But again, I think it's important that we don't just roll over and play dead and give up. We say, you know what? Hey, you know what? I've been throwing a curveball. Let's adjust. You know, I was raised with the words champions adjust. So no matter what gets thrown at me, figure out a way to adjust and you'll be a champion. So what you're saying is you actually kind of cheated with that rusty wire walk. I see. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. The bar. You got it. So, so we've talked a lot just now about, um, about that, the respect of fear, like that first, that first kind of fear, the healthy fear, the fear that you learn from, like that you, your grandfather, your great grandfather's fall wasn't hidden from you. I'm right. sure the fall from 1962, your family right. reviewed it, like it became a part of your legacy and your learning. Um, but there's a second kind of fear. There is, too, yeah. Um, and I know you talked in the book, uh, and this was another way that you talked about it. The first fear, the healthy fear is the experience of fear. And right. then the That's second right. is the emotion of fear. So That's right. can you yeah. talk to us about, about that emotion sure. of fear? And even though you are like the fear expert, have you ever struggled with yeah. that? Yeah. So the reason why I wrote this book actually was to help others. But the the main cause is I believe that every situation we go through in life can be used to help others, negative or positive. And back in 2018, I was training with my family to break our own world record, which we were going to perform the highest four level eight person pyramid on the wire. And about six months uh, of training uh, down low on the ground. We start at two feet with everything we do. Then we go up about 10 feet and then we'll take it to 30 feet or wherever that, whatever the height is. This was actually to break the world record was going to be about 30 feet above the ground. And, uh, so about six months of training, everything went great. We decided, okay, we're three days out from premiering it in front of a live audience. Let's take it up to full height. Let's get those, uh, those nerves out of the way so that when we're in front of the audience, we can just relax and do this pyramid. And uh, we made our way up high. We performed, we trained one evening. Everything went fine, went smooth. A lot of nerves, but that's common when you're doing something like this, breaking world record uh, with seven other people. The next morning we came back and as we made our way out on the wire in the formation of that eight person pyramid, my worst nightmare became a reality. And that pyramid collapsed in front of me. Um, five of my closest friends and family member fell, members fell to the ground. Uh, by the grace of God, I caught the wire, my cousin caught the wire, and one other gentleman stayed standing. Um, statistics of surviving, we were four layers high, so my aunt was actually over 50 feet above the ground. Um, statistics of actually surviving a fall from over 30 feet are about 25 to 30%. We had five people fall that far. I was okay, I thought, but the reality was, although I wasn't arm harmed uh, physically, I was harmed mentally. My sister had broken every bone in her face. She was rushed to the hospital, immediately went into a coma, uh, currently has 73 screws and plates in her face alone. She, has, uh, she was not expected to live. Uh, 
And the next day I was sitting in the, in the waiting room of the hospital where I had five close friends and family members hoping that they'll recover. No, not knowing if two of them would even survive. And my dad said, you know, I know you have a decision to make. And I was like, what do you mean? I got to, I mean, it was more pressure. I'm like, what do you mean? I have a decision to make this just happened. This crumbled in front of me. It's it's, it was again, my worst nightmare. And he goes, well, you're supposed to perform tomorrow night. And I was contracted to perform in Tampa, Florida over Amelie arena, which is where the Tampa Bay lightning play, but I was going to walk a wire about 120 feet up. And I do a lot of corporate speaking from the wire. So I was speaking to about 20,000 people, 120 feet above the ground, walking on this wire. And at that point, it never even crossed my mind to get back on the wire. It was just about my family and recovery. And, and to be honest, I didn't know if I'd ever get on the wire again, not because of fear. What I didn't realize is there was a seed planted in my head when that accident happened, a seed of fear, but I didn't, I didn't realize it. And you, you mentioned earlier with this COVID, a lot of people might not even realize that they're dealing or they're going to deal with fear. But I had that seed planted in my head, but I didn't really even have time to think about that. It was more out of respect for the people that were in the hospital. Like, would it be disrespectful for me to go, well, you're in the hospital, may not live, but I'm going to get back on the wire. Is that selfish? Is that wrong? And when my dad said that to me, I thought, you know, really, I, I thought I need to think back to my family history. And my great grandfather, who we've talked about a bit, has always been an inspiration to me. And in 1962, when they were performing that seven person pyramid on the, the wire and it collapsed, my great grandfather was injured, uh, broken collarbone and uh, several broken ribs. And he was in the hospital. And the next day, against the doctor's orders, he snuck out of the hospital and got back on the wire and performed. And I thought, well, it makes sense that my dad's saying this because it's the way my family's always lived. We've lived to inspire people that nothing is impossible. So guess what? That's what we do. So I, I decided what I would do is I knew I had my dad's blessing. Of course, it was his baby girl that we didn't know if she would live or not. Couldn't get to her because she was in a coma. So I thought, well, I have his blessing. I'm going to go talk to the others that I can talk to. And I went room to room in the hospital, I'll never forget, I get chills saying it and, and asking, are you okay if I go and, and perform tomorrow? And I'll never forget one of the gentlemen who had a broken hip and a, a broken calcaneus and was very mangled up. He looked at me, he was just quiet, and just shook his head. And he's like, you know, he goes, I think you're crazy, but yeah, I think you should do it. So a long story short, I got back on the wire and I started performing for the next six weeks straight. And uh, what I didn't realize is I, there was something different about me. And after about six weeks, I took uh, a couple months off while, while family was recovering. My sister was, was actually, she'd come out of a coma. She was starting to recover. She was released from the hospital. She was in rehab and, and learning how to walk again and, and talk again and eat again. And I mean, it, she, was, she was very mangled. And, um, and every time I visited her, I, just, I, I think that I just added, I started watering that seed that was planted in my head. And it started to, be, to come, come alive. You know, I often talk about negative thoughts or thoughts of fear, um, uh, uh, like a weed growing in the garden. And if you don't pluck out that weed immediately, it'll spread seeds, germinate, take over your whole garden. So it's important that you, you deal with it right away. I thought I dealt with it. We all know the analogy of get back on the horse. And that's what I thought I did. I got back on the wire. I'm good. I'm fine. Well, my family started saying, your personality is changing. Something's different about you. And I'm like, I said, I'm saying, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. And I'm always the rock. I always hold it together. And no matter what situation, when that happened, that accident, I got to the ground in 30 seconds, assessed the situation. It's actually all on video, assessed everybody and, uh, you know, made sure everybody was all right, completely calm, dealt with the situation, make sure everybody got to the hospital fine. And, and I can always stay in control of those situations. So everybody expects that out of me. Here I am, the leader. I'm the one they look up to. I've got to be that rock. And uh, so after the six weeks, two months off, I got back on the wire and we were contracted prior to the accident to do that pyramid in New York City. 
so we started training. And uh, after training for a couple days, I started noticing that there was a vibration uh, in the wire. It was someone was shaking. Very common when we're doing these pyramids and training and learning for somebody to be nervous enough to be shaking, trembling. I, I've never experienced that myself in, in, in my life, but we are all connected together. And as the leader and the person in the back on the bottom, I've got to assess and figure out who that is and then take them to the side and say, hey, you know what? What's going on? What are you dealing with? Are you staying up too late? Are you are you partying too much at night? Are you able to handle this mentally? Because again, it's about everybody's safety. And as the leader, it's my responsibility. So after two or three days of that, I remember walking the wire, uh, holding that pyramid and looking down at my arms going, am I the one shaking? It was confusing to me because I just, I'd never experienced it before. A couple of days later, I went to my wife and I said, I need you to watch this next pyramid because I'm not sure who's shaking in the pyramid, but I need to deal with it. And she said, I've been watching and I don't need to watch again. She goes, it's you. And I remember that being like a, a ton of bricks on my, on my chest, like, wow. So I am the one that is letting everybody down here. Now I'm dealing with something I've never dealt with before. A couple of days later, I, I was walking the wire. I said, you know what? I'm going to try to push through this. I'm walking the wire and I start seeing the pyramid collapse in front of me, just a form of PTSD. I'm walking six people in front of me and they all collapse over and over and over again. So a few more days of that, I went back to my apartment in New York City and I went to my wife and I said, I'm done. She's like, what do you mean you're done? I said, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I, there's something that has overcome me and I cannot, I hate to even use the word fear. I can't, I can't do this anymore. I quit. I'll never forget her response. She said, look, I, re, I, I respect you. I respect your decision. She said, but you know, I think you need to really think about what you're saying. Your entire history, your family history is based on the words, the show must go on. You guys have overcome the greatest challenges. You do what you do to inspire others that nothing is impossible. You sign every autograph, never give up. And you're going to give up. She's like, that's not Nick Walenda. I've been telling you for months, something is different about you. You need to figure out what is different. What is the root? What is the cause and deal with it? Now, most people would say, how would your wife say that to you doing what you do risking your life? But my wife comes from eight generations of circus on one side, seven on the other. She holds two world records, one for hanging by her teeth under a helicopter three, uh, 380 feet above Niagara Falls. She's a, a daredevil herself. So she, she has the same. For that. She beat you that's for right. That. Yeah, yeah, she did. So she has the same wives out there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. She did. So she has the same passions as I do and the same history. So it's easy for her to, to it, it makes a great, we have a great relationship because of that she understands what I do. When I say I'm going to walk across an active volcano, she's like, oh, okay, I wouldn't do it, but I get it. I support you. So, so that sort of conversation of, you know, you need to reevaluate and, and figure out what's going on set, sort of sent me into a spiral. And I remember getting in my truck and driving out to the middle of a cornfield out in Sussex New, Sussex, New Jersey, and sitting there and calling my manager and just saying, man, I don't know what's up with me. And, and, and in that conversation, he said, Nick, you've never dealt with the accident. That's what's up with you. You never dealt with it. You know, early on, I went to see a psychiatrist one time and she said, you know, you need to deal with this. You need to get back on the horse. This is going to come and haunt you in the future. And I was like, no, it's not. I'm fine. I got back on the wire. I don't need it. But the reality is she was 100% right. And uh, so, you know, I, I give those steps in the book of how I overcame this. And part of it was, was talking about it. You know, that's why there are psychiatrists and psychologists, something extremely healing about writing the book, to be honest with you, because yeah. I was able to, to, and that's when I started writing this book was, was days after that, that experience, that conversation with my manager, I went, you know what, I'm going to write this down because 
I am going to fight this. I am going to win this battle. And hopefully through that, others won't have to go so deep into that. Their deep, their roots won't grow so deep as deep as mine did. And they'll be able to pull them out a little bit easier. And that's, that's why I wrote this book. And that's why, um, again, it was that experience, that accident. And that's where that seed of that unhealthy fear was planted. And, and I believe that we all deal with that, but it really is sometimes an argument, you know, in our heads of, you know, hey, I want to pursue this this dream job. But again, but what about my bills? And what about my kids are still in school and going to college? And what about and we talk ourselves out of these these dreams and these goals and these ambitions? And um, and really, uh, you know, a lot of my book is that is about the fact that, hey, you know what, we need to we need to stop our our allowing our minds to go those places. I said a few minutes ago, I hate to use the word fear. I I I, at this point, try not to speak negativity over any situation because I think there's something powerful about that. You know, uh, the, the, the words that we, that we speak, the things that we listen to, the, uh, the stuff that we pump into our head. I mean, to be honest, I don't even watch the news anymore. I'll read news articles, but there's so much negativity in the news these days that it can just pull you down uh, and it can change your entire, your entire demeanor. So I encourage people to be very smart about what you say, what you hear, what you listen to and what you watch. Because uh, it can affect the direction of your life. And I will tell you, early on in my career, I was one to, uh, early on in my life, my wife used to be, she was always like this. And, and I used to roll my eyes, like, that's so stupid. Be careful what you watch. I, I can control all of that stuff. I mean, it don't matter what I watch. I am who I am. The reality is that stuff starts to mold us and change us. And often we don't realize until it's too late. And that's what happened with this accident. It molded and changed me. And I continued to go down that path little by little, not realizing it until it completely changed who I was. And I had to remember, oh, wait, no, that's not who I am. Uh, this, this, is, this is not who I am or it's who I've become, but I need to become what I was. You know, I think it's so, I just think this is so, because you didn't know, you didn't, you didn't Correct. know That's right. happening, you didn't, so, and this is a real, like, this is, this is something anyone listening can take away in a normal situation, in a, you know, any pursue my dream job, do this, take these risks, whatever, identify that fear, but, but to come back to this, so we are at a very unique time in our history um facing for the first time in generations now in your family you know like your seven generations they were in the night you know but this this is we're all in this very unique place with the yeah. pandemic and i as i'm listening to you i feel like there there is the possibility that for people in different areas of their lives a year from now, maybe even two years from now, um, the, the fear that we felt or the things that happened in this time will come out of us kind of sideways. And, yeah. and just like you're just like your your wife said, you're like, I'm I'm shaking and you don't even know yeah. why. And and yeah. the man saying it's because of that fall and you're like no no we're past the fall where yeah. I dealt with that like that's um so what would you say now knowing that this is you know I had a um just for a moment I had an interaction with my son he's nine and of course you know we're in New York City we experienced the pandemic right here in the yeah. epicenter the original epicenter of the United States um he got sent home you know his birthday party was on zoom he didn't see friends and and for the most part, my kids handled it fine. Sure. Um, they each had, my son is eight, my, no, my son is nine, my daughter's eight. They each both had one day, uh, one moment where they broke down crying, like it became too much for them. But otherwise the kids were fine. 
And then just a few weeks ago, um, we had the incident where the kids were in school. They were going to in-person school. We show up at the school. My daughter goes in. My son's class is stopped on the sidewalk. And the school says there has been the possibility of an exposure of COVID. We need you to go home, do class virtually today, and you'll receive an email with further instructions. Mm -hmm. So we my, you know, my son, my husband and I, we start to walk home and my husband and I start talking and we're like, well, we should probably cancel having him get together with this friend and my daughter getting together with this friend because my son stopped. He was wearing his mask and he said, wait, I, I'm not going to be able to see. He knows that he's already probably going to be virtual, but now he yeah. can't see his friends and his little eyes just above his mask just filled with tears and, and sure. he just started sobbing. And I realized it was, it was a moment, I think of, of PTSD, right? Like yeah, yeah definitely back to the, to the isolation. And, you know, that was a very real situation. And in the end, there wasn't any exposure to the school. They went back the next day, like everything was fine. Sure. Yeah, but I think we're all going to have these different moments where, whether it was your business collapsed, like I do, yeah. um, I do keynote speaking like you. There were there were some dark days in March. Yeah, my yeah that's right. Pretty. So, what would you yeah. say? And um, you know, now that I've talked for a bit here, but what yeah. would you what would you say to people who to make them aware that this could be coming down? This could sure. be coming down the road months from now, maybe even yeah. a year from now. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with you. I, th I think we all go through situations like that. Even prior to COVID, we all deal with those situations, and uh, and again, we don't realize the scars that they can leave behind. And I think we just we have to be careful. You know, it's so easy to be in that situation and and say it is the end of the world, and I'm not going to be able to see my friends, and I'm not going to be able to go back to school. And um, you know, I try to take every day uh, for what it is. Uh, and not look too far ahead. Obviously, we got to be prepared. We got to be smart, especially as businessmen and people operating companies, uh, running companies and, and businesses. And, but but I, I try to encourage people, don't look so far. I think so many so many people often, and I've, I've been just as guilty, but they look to the to the negative. In fact, a perfect example is, you know, I, I'd held that eight-person pyramid, seven-person pyramid, very similar pyramid, one other person in the eight, but I'd held it thousands of times successfully. My mind wanted to focus on the one time that I fell over thousands of times successfully. Uh, so, so I encourage people that, you know, you know, in regards to this, this, this uh, pandemic, there will be a vaccine days will change. It is going to change the way things are done and, and hopefully not forever. I hate the word, the new norm. I hope, yeah. hope we can go back to the, what the norm was. Um, and I hope that this vaccine, that, that it is something that will, you know, there's several of them coming out, obviously a lot of promising data, but, but that it will, uh, you know, at least deal with this. But, but again, I think, I think these situations, again, good things can come from it. I think a lot of business opportunities have come from this. Yeah. I think that uh, we've learned, um, we've learned that we need to be more careful about maybe washing our hands or, or yeah. interactions or I, again, I think there's a lot of positive. So I try not to focus on the negative, the fact, oh, this could last forever and my business could shut down. Uh, but I try to learn from every experience. You know, I talked early on about, I don't think you can be successful without failure. Yeah. So yes, your business could collapse, but, but the most successful people in the world have 20 businesses collapse and they keep going and, yeah. and that's what makes them successful. And that's how they become successful in the, in, in the business world, at least. So, you know, I encourage people continue to get up. Don't, don't, you know, don't give up on marriage because you have one that fails, continue, continue to live life. Uh, and, and with this pandemic, again, you have to be smart, but I, I encourage people don't be scared. Don't live in fear. 
but follow the CDC guidelines, follow what the government says, don't be rebellious. So many people are just rebellious and think they're, they're well, I'm not going to do that because they're telling me what to do. They're telling you to do it because it's the right thing. Uh, so listen to them. Um, so I, again, I encourage people to assess the entire situation. You know, we, we, we had an accident in, in this accident with this eight person pyramid. And, and since then, interestingly enough, I decided, look, when I'm involved with seven other people, that accident, I feel like they're all riding on my shoulders. Some of them in a literal sense, you know what, we're going to use a safety device from now on. Our family didn't, but we're going to adjust and we're going to use an airbag. Interestingly enough, when I faced that fear, when I was dealing with the lowest, darkest point in my life, was the first time in my career I had a safety device that was designed to catch me if I fell. Yet I still experienced it. Now, the interesting thing about that, and I'm kind of getting off on a tangent, was oh, I love this. That, that airbag down there that was below me was now revealing the fact that I could fall rather than the fact that it wasn't there. You know, I was when it wasn't there, it was not an option. Uh, my great-grandfather taught forever for generations that a safety net is a false sense of security. And what he meant by that was he had an older brother that fell into a net and bounced out and was killed. So just because you have a safety net doesn't necessarily mean you're safe. And what that can cause you to do is become complacent. And one of my fears was now these seven other people are going to go, well, I don't have, I can stay out later tonight because I got a safety anyways. But the reality is we can't think that way because the dangers can often still be there even with that safety net. We still get thrown, thrown curveballs last minute. Businesses still fail, even though we, we put in all of these practices. But as long as you continue to get back up and keep going, uh, you know, you'll be able to overcome those challenges. Well, and you are the ultimate at getting back up because the active volcano was just uh, this past March, right? Yeah, like, it was. Yeah. It was. Yeah, and to back up a few months before that, about six months before that. So my sister, I talked to you about how she would was in a coma, didn't even think she was going to live. Well, not only did she recover, but she got back onto a wire. Michael Strahan's a buddy of mine, and he hosted that special for me on ABC. And he said it best. He said, you know, when you're in the NFL and you return from an injury, you don't return to the Super Bowl. But my sister returned to the Super Bowl and won the MVP because she got back on the wire just over a year after that accident that nearly took her life on a wire that was three times higher and four times longer than anything she'd walked in her entire career other than in practice. Of course, she trained and prepared for that walk just like I do. But the reality is she got back on that wire, overcoming the greatest challenges that you can imagine. And again, continuing to live that legacy that our family has for 200 years of inspiration. Nothing is impossible. Get back up. Encouraging women, children, men, boys, doesn't matter that nothing is impossible. If anyone should have had that mental battle, that battle with fear, and she did, she faced it. But what was cool was I had gone through that battle already. I had dealt with the PTSD. I had dealt with the shaking. I had dealt with the trauma and the stress. So I was allowed, I was able to actually coach her through that situation. I've been through it. it took me six months to get through it we're going to help you get through it and you're going to get through it in, and she got through it in, in about three weeks. She had a, re a revelation. She dealt with it. She was on a wire with a safety 30 feet up training for times square on a wire, the same length. And she was struggling with fear and she was walking that wire, um, uh, that, that we were training on. And it was taking her about, about 30 minutes to cross that wire. And, um, and it was, it takes me about 12 minutes to cross that same wire and it would normally take her 12, but it was fear. And one morning we went out there to rehearse after two weeks of rehearsals, two and a half weeks of rehearsals. And she got on that wire and she walked across in 12 minutes. And I was like, I turned around because we crossed each other. She sits down, I step over and we cross to the other sides as we did over Times Square live on ABC. And, uh, and I looked back and she, she was already in and we got down and I said, what changed? And she said, I had a revelation last night that that this is not, I was believing lies, that I was a failure, that I was going to 
told I wasn't going to make it. But the reality was I realized who I was and this is what I was made to do. And, uh, and she said that revelation literally was a switch in her mind. And she was able to walk that wire and then ended up again, walking that wire over Times Square and, and continuing to perform and continuing to inspire people that nothing is impossible. Wow. I mean, it's just so, it's such a real, like uh, a literal expression of managing fear. And that's what I love. So often we think about fear, you know, it's just this kind of, um, you know, it's this proverbial thing. Sure, sure. Such a literal. So I want to ask you, um, I want to ask you another question here. And this is, this shifts gears a little bit. Um but, but you had said earlier that that this business, you know, the circus, the performance, you're, you're eating the chicken one day and the feathers the next. But there is a tradition, right? This is, this is how the art is done. This is yeah. where it happens. This is what you wear. Um, yeah. And you decided to pivot. Yeah. Um, and I think that pivot is another big word that people are, are going to be, man, we can't do business the yeah. way they've always done it. We will be eating the feathers. Um, so tell me about your decision to pivot the industry, or at least how you express the industry sure. was that met with celebration. <laughs> like what, yeah. what did that experience tell us about that decision and, and how it felt? Yeah, I've pivoted a couple of times once uh, in the last couple of months as well, again, just because of this pandemic. But look, early on in my career, I realized that the, the circus world was, and a lot of it, thanks to media, um, was kind of fading away, you know, that it was going away. And, you know, I remember, uh, you know, for the last couple of generations, when there's chaos in the White House or in, uh, you know, in D.C., it is a circus, you know, and, and I was, I've always taken offense to that because the reality is circus is the most organized, one of the most organized industries in the world. Uh, you know, it was early on, my grandmother, when she was with Ringling Brothers, it was a, a city with 800 horses alone that traveled with that show. Uh, an entire city, that, uh, you know, it was set up a show with, with uh, over a thousand performers, sat 5,000 people, but it was an arena basically set up overnight. You would show up the next day, you'd wake up the next morning, you'd be like, wow, there's an arena in, in, in my city. Um, so talk about organization to make that happen or pull that off is nearly impossible. So, um, media had painted this negative connotation of what circus was. You look at, you know, I remember with my kids growing up watching SpongeBob SquarePants and, and when it came to circus, it was this cheesy clown that wasn't funny. whose horn honk, uh, nose honked and he rode a unicycle juggling, you know, it wasn't what circus really is. Circus is an amazing, takes athleticism. It takes talent, skill, lifelong training. Um, that's of circus families are generational because it's something you have to, you have to be born doing in order to, to, to do it. So, um, so I realized that there was those struggles and I realized that, that we needed to change. So what I decided I wanted to do was do these bigger events, break world records. Do, you know, I'm still walking a wire when I walk over the Grand Canyon, the same as what we do under a circus tent, but I'm doing it over the Grand Canyon. I've lost seven family members walking under the circus tent is the reality. So the dangers are the same. The risks are the same. We had 23 million people watch when I walked over the Grand Canyon live on, on Discovery Channel, broke TV rating records, highest rated show in the history of the largest network in the world. People think that circus is cool. They like it. They're fascinated by it. It just has to be presented differently. And that's really what I set out to do was, hey, I'm not going to wear the rhinestones and that sort of stuff. I'm going to pay tribute to that, respect to that. But, you know, when I walked over the Grand Canyon, I wore a pair of blue jeans. 
it was what I was wearing and I felt comfortable in. I'm like, that's what I'm going to wear. So um, I realized that I needed to sort of just change the way it was being presented. And that's what I set out to do. Now, what's ironic is all of these world records I broke and everything that I've done has always been to pay tribute to my family, but it really is with the goal and dream and aspirations of getting back under that big top. There's something extremely magical about a one ring circus when you get under there with your kids and experience that families talk about for generations of, yeah. oh, I remember every year I went to see the circus and-, and, and I remember, and, I remember going. Yeah, and I when you can see- candy And we'd always get these like a little light. I mean, I yep, remember- That's right, it. yeah. Remember yeah. going- Yes. So, so all of that was really, I do all of that to get back under that big top, because to me, it's all about leaving a lasting impression on and bringing families together. I think this day and age with social media, with cell phones, with all these devices, smart devices, smartphones, people, families are so distanced now, you know, they will be, you go to, they're at the dinner table, go to a restaurant and everybody's on their phone the whole time. There's no interaction with family. Uh, so my goal is, has always been to get back under that big top. So families can come put their cell phones down and actually, uh, you know, be immersed in this amazing, magical world. Uh, but what it took was changing the way that I do things, uh, changing the way that it is presented. And uh, in fact, I'm working on a big project that uh, for New York City uh, on a new show that'll be under a big top. And it is going to be presented in a whole new way. Uh, same skill, same talent, but just presented differently for the next generation. So you let so, me know because I'm oh, absolutely Right. I want to cut. I live here. Of I course I will. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. so, uh, but as of late, I've had to pivot because of this pandemic, you know, we, I was set to, uh, to tour all over the country with a show, social distancing wouldn't allow it. Entertainment world, live entertainment was the first to get shut down and it is one going to be one of the last to open back up. And, um, what I've, what I decided to do was to create a drive-in real show. So early on, uh, two months into this pandemic, I called all my friends that were corn that were that were uh, locked up in their house, not allowed to leave home, and uh, or not allowed to not allowed to go out and, and and do things. And I said, "What are you doing?" And they're like, "We're sitting at home like everybody else because we have to." And I said, "Well, great. We're never never able to perform together because they're usually headlining." somewhere else when I'm headlining somewhere. And I said, let's all get together and put together an amazing show. So it was a cool opportunity that, that we're actually going to tour with. We, we've already done uh, three cities, but basically the best of the best, 23 Guinness World Records held between our team. And, uh, and we get together and put on this amazing show where you literally can sit in your car, keep your windows rolled up, turn into our radio station and listen and be amazed by all of these stunts that we do. And we've been able to we push each other to do different things. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I'm now the voice of reason because the next generation coming up always wants to do the crazier things. I'm like, no, guys. And they're like, who are you to say, no, don't do that. It's too uh, Come on, come on. We're the next generation. But it's it's been a cool opportunity. And again, it's just another example of pivoting, uh, you know, when we're against these these strange, these strange times and these huge challenges. Monumental task is to, cha to change. But early on, I mean, very early on when this happened, I thought, you know, Yes, this sucks. Yes, our entertainment world is shut down. But guess what? There's huge opportunity here. And just like so many businesses that switched from doing one thing to making hand sanitizer or masks or anything else, there are there is opportunity here. And, and a lot of people are going to become very wealthy through this situation in a good way. I mean, presenting, you know, providing protection wear for us, et cetera, et cetera. There is a lot of opportunity here as well, I think. So I always take, take a negative situation and go, okay, how, how can I turn that into something positive? How can I how can I, uh, you know, take something negative and, and, and make a happy situation out of it or use it, use it to help me learn and grow? Well, and to bring in joy. I just picture these, I picture all the families now that That's really right. are desperate to, I mean, 
now more than ever. I mean, our kids are going to school via screens. The way that they see their friends is via screens. Like yeah. it's, um, so to be able to come together and watch. Well, Nick, this is, actually, I have more questions, but we'll, we're, I want to be respectful of your time. And I want to make sure that our listeners know where to find you so they can A, get the book, um, B, stay up to date on, on these great projects that you're working on. So where's the best way to find you and stay up to date on the next crazy things you're doing? Sure. Yeah. So you can go to nickwalenda.com. It's just N-I-K walenda.com uh, to stay up to date on the things that I'm doing. Nick Walenda's Daredevil Rally is another website, which is the show that we're touring with now uh, that yeah. we're working on. Uh, and you can purchase the book on the website as well as other merchandise, but you can also purchase the book at any local or online retailer. All right. Any any last final words? Any final story you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, look, I, I just want to encourage everybody, don't be discouraged by these crazy times. Again, there is always a light at the end of the tunnel. Every negative situation I've gone through has led to greater things, uh, as long as I have the right t- attitude while I'm going through them. Uh, and I don't always have that, but I work towards that and drive and strive to be better. And uh, as long as you have that attitude and live by the words my family have lived by for over 200 years, which are never give up, I believe you can be successful in any any uh, dream or aspiration you're chasing. Uh, well, you are proof that that is possible. The book is called Facing Fears, Step Out in Faith and Rise Above What's Holding You Back. If you've enjoyed this conversation, make sure to subscribe and more importantly, leave us a review and a rating. Thank you so much, Nick, for sharing your story. Thanks for having me. We'll see you soon. If you enjoyed this conversation, look up an inch or down an inch and check out all of our previous discussions. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are sold. And of course, check out the latest issue of Success Magazine by heading over to success.com slash subscribe and get more inspiring stories like this delivered right to your front door. Be sure to give us a review on Apple iTunes and you can find me at kindrahall.com or on Instagram at kindrahall. That is Kindra with an I. I can't wait to hear the stories you'll tell. Until next time. Bye.